How you doing, everyone? This is Glenn Gare from the Neepscast, the official podcast of the Northeastern Evolutionary Psychology Society. And we talk about everything regarding evolution and psychology with people affiliated with the, uh, with the society. I'm fortunate today to be here with Sarah Hill from Texas Christian University, professor of psychology, um, who will be talking about her research in the field of evolutionary psychology, how she came uh, to be connected to the field, and some of the really great projects that she's working on now. Uh, Sarah, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I think one of the things I like to find out is where people entered into the field of evolutionary psychology. So what was your path to coming into this field? Well, you know, it's really interesting because, um, you know, I didn't actually start out in, uh, in psychology. Um, I actually didn't have, um, in, I haven't had a class in um, like intro psychology or um, even uh, social psychology. Um, I actually started out um, as an undergraduate in um, anthropology. Um, and, you know, I did the thing that a lot of um, undergraduates did, and I had these, you know, sort of um, starry-eyed ideas about um, what, you know, the field of study that I was doing is actually interested in. And um, I was taking classes in human evolution, and so I was, you know, doing that piece. And um, in, in anthropology, you also take classes in culture. Um, so there's like cultural anthropology and then they call it biological anthropology. And so I was taking classes in both of these areas because that's part of the degree requirements. Um, and uh, my senior year, I took a class um, called Human Sociobiology. Um, and in this class, the, um, you know, the professor used two books. He used uh, David Buss's um, uh, evolutionary psychology textbook, and then this edited volume um, by uh, Laura Betzig, which um, has some readings from yeah, biological anthropology in it. And so, you know, we were using this book and we were talking about human behavior and using an evolutionary perspective to um, understand human behavior. And so I, as a starry-eyed undergrad, um, assumed that cultural anthropology um, was the study of the evolutionary foundations of human, human cultural variation. Um, and so I um, applied to different graduate programs and um, I ended up going to UT Austin and I went there for um, cultural anthropology. Um, and, uh, you know, I had, I grew up in Wisconsin. I did my undergraduate degree in Wisconsin. Um, and then I moved to Texas to go to graduate school. And, um, you know, my first day of grad school, I like, showed up with my brand new backpack and my, you know, um, stars in my eyes and really excited to start talking about the evolutionary foundations of cultural variation. Um, and I was shocked and, um, and, and heartbroken because as soon as I started talking, you know, about evolution and science and um, the functional, you know, sort of uh, reasons for sex differences, um, the people in the room, it was just like dead silence and like a tumbleweed sort of wow. slowly, you know, blowing across the front of the room um, as everybody stared um, open-mouthed at me um, and then proceeded to tell me that, 
you know, no, you cannot use science to try to understand human behavior. And there is no, you know, um, functional reason for behavior. Behavior is like an art and it should be studied as like a, a text. And, you know, men and women aren't actually different from one another except for their reproductive organs. And, you know, any differences between men and women um, is just the result of, of socialization. Um, and they called me a misogynist and, mm, and wow. racist. I mean, it was, yeah, it was horrible. I was horrible. I was, I was devastated. I was nothing short of completely devastated. I had like moved across the country. I didn't really know any, or, you know, didn't know anybody. Um, and then I was having all of these personal attacks lobbed against me because I, of what I thought I was doing, you know, it was like the right thing. And, um, so I was going to totally drop out and move back home. Um, and, but I was just looking for something to do for the rest of the semester. And so I was leafing through the course offerings because I was going to drop all of my anthropology classes. And I thought I'd take like a underwater basket weaving or, or something um, like uh, tribal dance or something to pass right. time until, um, until I left. And I saw that David Buss was there um, teaching a class, a graduate class on, evolutionary psychology and so um i sent him this really embarrassing um teary email about how i was this you know persecuted anthropologist um, and how i'd read his book as an undergrad and um, would it be okay if i sat in on his graduate seminar um for something to do before i moved out of austin and moved back home and um and he acquiesced and told me I could sit in on his class and, um, and I did. And then, um, you know, I ended up um, applying and getting into his lab the following year. And so, um, you know, I had no um, experience in psychology. I'd never run an experiment or worked in a lab. And, um, but he took a chance on me and that was a big, was a big moment um, that turned out to be a really um, sort of a game changing thing because of course I've made a career. That's um, awesome. Yeah, and the stuff I didn't even know it was an area of research. To be honest with you, and right. you know, I was like asking um, the students in the graduate seminar. I'm like, so what do you do? And they're like, oh, I'm a graduate student um, in evolutionary psychology. And I was like, what? <laughs> you can <laughs> do that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's it's such that's such a great story for so many reasons. Um, the the one one thing that it makes me think is that people. Um, don't realize how bifurcated the field of anthropology is regarding the issue of evolution. Um, yeah. so, you know, when I took a course in, in evolution or in anthropology years ago, um, when I was an undergrad at UConn, I remember the textbook starts with fossils and it starts with um, Australopiths and it gets into Homo erectus and Neanderthals. And it just feels like, to a naive undergraduate student that anthropology is largely uh, based on a foundation of, of evolution. Um, but in, in fact, and it sounds like this is what you ran into, it's really not so much that way, um, that there's a, there's a divide, there are compartments. It's kind of like you're that kind of anthropologist or you're this totally other kind of anthropologist. And, and people don't necessarily know that off the bat. Right. Yeah. And it's like hard for the, the students to know like what, you know, like what time it is. I, I mean, you know, nobody set me straight, which, um, you know, I guess it ended up working out okay. Um, it was like totally serendipitous yeah. that I ended up at 
you know, UT where, um, where David happened, uh, happened to be. But I mean, yeah, it's really confusing for students when you're, you know, doing um, like biological anthropology is like science, science, you know, it's right. learning about, you know, Hardy Weinberg equilibrium and, you know, um, population genetics and, um, and like, that's like real, you know, science. And then when you have this other camp of people who, you know, are antagonistic towards science and actually, you know, I was told it is inappropriate to use the tools of science to understand human behavior by um, cultural anthropologists. And, um, yeah, it's a really interesting, um, sort of, uh, um, situation that they're, living in in a lot of anthropology departments because you get the sort of bifurcation yeah absolutely fascinating and i guess the other thing to note real quickly is um you know i'm a huge fan of of your mentor david buss and hearing that story makes a lot of sense to me because while he's known as this internationally prolific researcher um if you know him uh, on a personal level he's a super nice guy who cares so deeply about the students that he works with, um, which is so, you know, you don't have to be like that. If you're an international researcher, you kind of can, you kind of can do what you want, but David has such a great track record of mentoring students and bringing them into, into the fold and helping guide them onto positive paths moving forward. Yeah, no, I have such a um, huge like debt of gratitude uh, toward him because like I was a clueless anthropologist who'd never run a laboratory session in my life, and um, and he took a chance on me, um, and you know that that's like it's made like such a huge um, difference in um, in my life, and um, yeah, he's really he really is a, a, a pretty awesome guy. That's great. I just love hearing positive mentoring stories like that. Yeah. Um, and, and that kind of relates to the fact that at NEEPS this year, which is going to be between June 2nd and 4th up in Boston, um, you're going to be one of four panelists speaking at a mentoring lunch um, where you'll be guiding aspiring scholars and academics um, on career-related guidance. Uh, mm-hmm. So maybe take a minute or two to, to talk about uh, your thoughts on that. Yeah, no, that's, it's going to be really, um, that'll be really exciting. I'm, uh, I, you know, am somebody who, um, like David, I had a very good, um, mentor myself and, um, mentoring, um, other students is something that I, um, take really seriously. So I'm really looking forward to having an opportunity to, um, talk to sort of budding new, um, scientists and talking about, ways to um, sort of best set themselves up for um, success and also help dispel some of the myths um, that surround um, academia and even like academia um, as women, um, Mm because that's something I know there's a lot of um, women out there, young uh, female scientists who are concerned about things um, that, you know, male scientists, not to sort of, um, stereotype uh men don't have to you know worry um generally aren't as worried um about things like work-life balance as women are um and about things like being able to um sort of have children when your like reproductive clock is like matches the tenure clock perfectly right Mm -hmm. um and so it's it's nice um i think sometimes for um you know young uh, female scientists to be able to hear 
um, like how to be able to um, sort of achieve all of their career goals. And, and just to see here that it's, it really is very possible um, to be able to do that. And then also be able to, if you want to have a family, um, being able to sort of manage all of that, because it is sort of an, it is an art form. <laughs> sure. Absolutely. Well, it sounds like you've, you've done it reasonably well. And I just want to give a shout out that you were just promoted to the rank of full professor, the highest rank within the Academy. So yes. <laughs> whatever you're doing, you're doing the right thing. So I'd, I'd say, um, I think that your advice is going to go a, a long way at that particular event. Uh, thanks. Yeah, there's no longer any qualifiers before my job title. <laughs> right, right. I agree. Um, so, so uh, switching gears a little bit to research, um, I've known about research projects of yours for, for decades. I think that you do a great job in the lab. Um, I understand that you have a new project related to uh, physical, physiological inflammation and how that relates to behavioral tendencies. Uh, maybe tell us a little bit about that project. Yeah, I would love to. Um, so the research in my lab, um, you know, we're kind of all over the place um, in terms of like, I have a lot of different research interests. Same. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, it's funny. Um, and I think people, because our theoretical perspective is so sort of broad, mm -hmm. um, it, I think that it sort of lends, it, like people who like to, I mean, you know, it allows us to, you know, be interested in a lot of different things. So I think we're really fortunate in that Absolutely. way. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, and um, in this latest um, project that um, that I've been involved with that I'm really excited about um, has been using insights from um, life history theory and risk sensitive foraging theory um, to make predictions about um, the um, role that health plays in terms of a person's um, ability to delay gratification um, and their desire for immediately available rewards, and um, so. You know, research um, in the evolutionary sciences, especially in, um, you know, uh, behavioral ecology and, you know, in, in some work in evolutionary psychology has been done, I'm looking at this as well, um, has used insights from life history theory and uh, risk-sensitive foraging theory to predict that um, it cues in your environment. So things like, uh, you know, uh, the rate of violence or resource availability. Mm -hmm. Um, these different things that influence a person's uh, need for immediately available resources or that decrease or that influence their ability like to survive, to uh, receive later available rewards, um, that these things should influence an organism's, you know, ability to delay gratification. And um, what this research finds is that in species ranging from like fungi to honeybees, um, to human beings, um, if you put them in a context where their probability of survival is relatively low or their need for resources immediately is relatively high, um, that sort of causes them to discount the future and they want, you know, things right now um, and they don't want to delay gratification. And so we sort of wanted to take these insights but instead of looking at cues in the external environment, how those influence um, sort of the desire for stuff right now versus later. Um, we wanted to look at cues in the in, like in the body mm -hmm. um, that might have the the same sort of modulatory effect. And so, in particular, um, we were interested in whether or not signaling from the immune system, which is one of the ways that the body sort of signals, you know, it that it's currently um, in sort of poor repair or is managing, you know, pathogens or you know, it's something that just occurs as the body ages and begins to break down. 
um, we predicted that inflammatory activity in the body um, would predict an increased desire for immediately available rewards. And the idea just being that when you're experiencing inflammatory activity in the body, um, this is something that we know um, is associated with an increased need for immediately available resources. I mean, this is because when you have inflammation in the body, it actually increases your metabolic needs um, and pretty substantially. Um, and having inflammatory activity in the body also means that sort of all else being equal, that your probability of survival is somewhat lower than that of somebody um, who does not have inflammatory activity. Right. And again, yeah, the reason for this, of course, is just that you know, inflammatory activity is something that goes on when your body is aging. It's also something that goes on when your body is fighting something off or is managing some sort of distress. And so it's something that's sort of an internal cue of um, heightened mortality risk. And so we wanted to see whether inflammation um, would, would predict a person's desire for immediately available rewards. And so we tested this in a couple of studies now um, where we would bring participants into the lab and we would take some blood and we would look at the amount of um, inflammation um, that is being released in their bloodstream. Um, and then we would measure um, their ability to delay gratification and their sort of preference for immediately available rewards. Um, and in each of these studies now, we found um, pretty robust evidence demonstrating that inflammatory activity does increase person's desire for immediately available rewards. Um, so was, interesting. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, we're super stoked about this, and we're super stoked about it for a lot of reasons. One is that, that it's you know it uses these really elegant theories from evolutionary biology and uses them as a way to make a, you know a new understanding about the impact of health on decision making. Um, but we're also really interested in it in terms of its intervention potential um, because, you know, inflammation is something that, you know, you can treat using medications, but you could also treat it um, by doing things like meditation, um, eating healthier, getting enough sleep, exercise. And so there's a lot of things that we can do, um, you know, that are health promoting um, and not, you know, invasive or expensive. Um, that potentially could lead individuals to make better, more sort of future-focused decisions, um, you know, and that's something that a lot of times we're seeking to do anyway. And so um, we're really excited about this. And so we're following up on it now and looking at, um, you know, its role in terms of promoting also cooperation. Um, mm, so that's sure. a future-focused type of a behavior. Right. Um, and then looking at whether or not, um, you know, like simple ways of minimizing inflammatory activity can lead to um, sort of um, better ability to delay gratification and focus on future-related outcomes. Well, this is great. I'm looking at the paper right now, which is um, published just recently in Scientific Reports, and I plan to read it the second we're done with this conversation. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. I, um, yeah, it's a, it's a good paper. So I, yeah, you'll let me know what you think. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so uh, switching gears a little bit, I also see that you have a brand new book coming out titled, this is your brain on birth control, the surprising science of women, hormones, and the law of unintended consequences. That sounds awesome. Thank you. Yeah. I'm super excited about, I'm super excited about the book. Yeah, I could see why. Um, it, it looks like it has a lot of implications for understanding human behavior and potential implications for society as well. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, um, the book is like, it's, it's really a synthesis of a lot of different research areas, which is kind of the thing I like to do. I always like to sort of weave together things that I know about this and things that I know about that. Um, this book is uh, no exception to that. It's, um, it starts out with just sort of a, um, you know, explaining to women, like, what does it mean to be a woman, both in terms of, you know, evolutionarily, what is it that makes women different from men, sort of ultimately, you know, using the um, tools available from um, evolutionary psychology. Um, And then, you know, what does it mean to be a woman sort of proximally? So like, what are some of the um, sort of physiological um, things that make women different from men, and um, in particular, talking about um, hormones um, and how hormones work and how they influence who we are. Um, and the like, the first section of the book is really about um, kind of getting people to have a paradigm shift about um, hormones and and how they influence who we are, um, because I I think that you know, even among scientists, you know, none of us in the sciences would ever be somebody who would endorse this idea of a Cartesian split, right? Like where the mind and the body are separate entities. I think most of us reject that. Um, But I think that we forget it sometimes. Um, I, you know, and, and this is certainly true for people who aren't scientists, but even for people who are scientists where, um, we forget that, you know, our mind is a product of what the brain is doing. Right. And it's a product of the different types of signaling molecules going on in our body. Um, and that includes our hormones. Um, and you know, there are hormone receptors like all over the place in the brain. So you can't change a woman's hormones without changing the version of a woman that she is. You're going to change the version of herself that her brain creates. Um, and so, you know, this is the first part of this book is just really sort of, you know, giving us a paradigm shift. And um, because I think that we've all kind of had a blind spot when it comes to the birth control pill, because we forget that we are our hormones and that right. they are part of like who we are and they don't just influence our ovaries, right? They influence like the whole self. Um, and so, you know, it's talking about that in, um, in, in this portion of the book, I think was really important um, because, you know, so even for me, I was on the, I was on the pill for um, like a decade of my life. And even though I study, you know, women um, in health um, and even I've studied hormones and how it influences women's behavior, I never, like I had a total blind spot when it came to the birth control pill. I like never thought about the fact that it was influencing like who I was at the time I was taking it. Um, And then when I went off of it, I felt very different than I felt when I was on Mm -hmm. it. Um, And I was also sort of um, made aware of some research that um, uh, our colleague uh, Bruce Ellis did where he found that women on the pill don't have a cortisol response to stress. And that was actually the moment that I had the sort of epiphany that, oh my gosh, of course the pill, you know, it influences everything that a woman's brain and body is doing because it's a hormone and that's like part of who we are. Mm-hmm. Um, and duh, <laughs> I was embarrassed actually that it hadn't occurred to me. Um, and so I, I wrote the books. I wanted women um, to be able to have this information because it just isn't out there. And so the second part of the book is talking about all the research 
um, that's been done um, on non-human primates. There's been some kind of cool work done on, on them, research in neuroscience, um, and even some research that's been done by evolutionarily informed researchers on looking at the way that the pill changes what the brain does, and then also the way that the pill changes a woman's behavior. And so the second portion of the book is sort of uncovering all of that research and presenting it to uh, women um, and men who are interested in learning about it. Um, and then the last section is like kind of like meta issues with the pill. Um, you know, as evolutionary psychologists, we're of course um, really aware of how important, you know, sort of the, um, the reproductive consequences of sexual behavior are in terms of shaping patterns of behavior. Right, so we know um, that like men and women are different from one another because you know women have had these really huge consequences um, that are associated with sexual activity that men haven't had to bear. Right, right. and that is of course that women, you know, um, have had to had faced the possibility of having this nine month pregnancy and then time lactating and all of that. Um, and so, you know, that in that small difference in the reproductive consequences that are associated with sex um, have led to men and women being as different from each other as we are. Um, and so now when you have something like the pill, where it's removed the consequences of sexual behavior from women, um, that can have really, you know, big implications for um, women's sexual decision making, which we know it does, because we know that the pill has... Um, because it's removed the consequences of sexual behavior, it's allowed women, you know, to be able to um, have, you know, more sex partners um, and sort of more short-term sex than they ever have before. But that, of course, is going to change what men do because yep. men, you know, a lot of what men do is motivated by their desire to get access to women. And so the book talks about how men's behavior has also changed in response to the changing consequences associated with sex that women have in light of the birth control pill and sort of the ways that that is sort of cascaded to change the way that our world is right now. And so it's kind of a cool, you know, first we start talking about the, you know, the internal level by talking about um, hormones and, you know, and, and what all that means. And then we talk about women and how the pill changes women. And then we talk about how changing women changes the world. That's, it's absolutely fascinating. And I feel like it's this evolutionary perspective that you have that's really allowing you to, to look at the effects of birth control in this really large scale kind of way. So I, I feel like this book has potential to be a real eye opener. And I, I really look forward to, to seeing it hit the shelves. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. I think that, um, you know, I am so grateful that I had the opportunity to write this um, book. And I do think that having the evolutionary perspective is absolutely critical. I think that if a neuro, because, you know, the, the other like sort of camp of research that would have made sense to write a book like this would be like a neuroscientist. But I feel like they're, they would miss out on sort of the big picture yeah. thing. Um, which I think that I'm able to capture in the book and um, which I think makes it, you know, it, it allows us to see, you know, sort of how, you know, when you make one small change in a really interdependent type of a system, how it changes the whole system. And yeah, I'm really excited about it. It's going to um, come out October 8th. Oh, you can look for it then. That's great. That's great. I'll make sure to get my copy. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Sarah, it's been a, a pleasure talking to you. I feel like you are a, a really dynamic um, intellectual with lots of great things to say related to evolutionary psych. So thank you so much for, for joining me. And yeah. 
I'll say that the very last thing that we ask of our guests, of course, is to please give us your evolutionary psychology inspired haiku. Okay, so this is, um, and I have to tell you that this is, um, I was immediately endeared to this uh, Neef's cast when I got this request because um, there is like nothing better than a good haiku. <laughs> I agree. Maybe like, like a limerick. And I think that maybe next time you um, also have your guests um, write a limerick. <laughs> <laughs> Be Becky Birch, just so you know, went out of her way to actually write a limerick instead of a haiku with that same reasoning. <laughs> Are you serious? That's hilarious. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, so she must be my, she must be my spirit animal. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, okay, here's my haiku. Um, understanding minds requires knowing the purpose for which they were made. Bam. That, that nails it right there, Sarah. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, and thanks, um, thanks so much for giving me the opportunity to um, talk to your listeners. Oh, my God. Again, thank you so much. I look forward to seeing you in Boston in June. Yeah, it'll be great. Thanks. Yeah, very good. Take care. Great. Bye.